Hey everyone, I'm Ruth and welcome to my podcast, Living Unashamed. You know, every day we are bombarded with negative news, stories of bad things that are happening in this world, chaos, pain. And the one thing that overcomes them, God says in his word, is that we overcome them by the word of our testimony, which is how God is moving in our lives, but also the blood of the lamb, which is the completed work of Jesus. So join me as I chat to people from all walks of life and locations as they share of how they encountered Jesus and the incredible journey he has taken them on since then till now and will continue to. We look forward to hearing how God has inspired and blessed so many people around the world and how those news can help lead others to Christ. So welcome. We are so blessed to have you and I pray that you are abundantly blessed by today's episode of Living Unashamed. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Living Unashamed podcast. I am here with um, a special family friend today, actually. His name is Paul and he is part of the family that I married into. And I've heard a little bit about his story from my in-laws, but I'm excited to be able to um, get to know him a bit more and to hear with you as he shares how he came to know Christ and um, how Jesus has taken him on a pretty incredible journey since then and um yeah to just I'm excited to see what God has been doing in and through you in the seasons of your lifetime yeah so thanks for joining us Paul <laughs> thank you Ruth it's it's a great pleasure um how I came to Christ well that's mm. going back a while a lot's <laughs> happened since then but um I think it was in 1981 that I went off to go to board at a college. Uh, it was an agricultural college. And while I was there, not being a Christian at that stage, not being born again, I um, started to get up to a lot of mischief along with the other students uh, after class hours. But something in my gut always told me that that kind of a lifestyle was just not right. Mm-hmm. And there came a day when I overheard couple of other young blokes who I didn't really know that well talking about going to church the next day and uh and it got my attention I thought that's something I haven't done for a long time and I was looking for an excuse to get out of the college and do something and so I asked them if I could come with them and so they gave me the strict instructions of you know the do's and don'ts of (laughs) going into a church because they knew me well enough to realize that I probably wouldn't know that and so I went to a Baptist church with them. And uh, that day, Pastor Oakley, this is in Maitland, New South Wales, uh, who's now with the Lord, long since gone, he gave a very clear gospel message, which I understood for the first time. And though I'd heard it as a child, I really had never connected with the reality of what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and to rise again from the dead so that I could have eternal life. And mm-hmm. Well, that day I realized that if I did die, that I was headed toward hell. And, uh, and that scared me. And I thought, no, that's not what I want. <laughs> I want to go to heaven. Up until then, I had presumed that everybody just went to heaven by default and uh, had no comprehension of the fact that there's only, um, well, the, Jesus says the road is narrow and there are few who find it. And uh, I was on the broad road. And I was headed toward destruction, and but that day everything changed, and wow. I asked Jesus to come into my life. Yeah. Oh, beautiful! It's awesome that um, God works in so many different ways. And you know, even yesterday I was talking to. I think it was yesterday I was doing a, one of these with an, another person who um, is from an older generation, like probably okay. your parents' generation, maybe like or. Actually, no, probably not your parents' generation. <laughs> I don't know. He said, like, I never met him, but he seemed fairly, fairly old. He mentioned that he was in the days of the Cold War and things like that. So, <laughs> or me, yeah. <laughs> um, but he also felt the pull to come to know Christ by um, fear of the changes that were happening in the world and and not wanting to go to hell, and also feeling like he should go to church and just see what would happen through that. So it's pretty fascinating to see how God um, moves in different ways. Um, yeah. mm. But so how did your, how do you feel your life changed from that, from that encounter with Christ? Onwards? Okay. 
I have some um, very clear memories. I went back to college and, of course, the college life hadn't changed, but I had changed. Mm. Uh, I began to read the Bible, which I'd never bothered to do before for myself. And not knowing where to start, I did have a Bible. My mother had thrown it in my suitcase. It was an old King James Version. Yeah. So understanding it was not so easy, but I flipped open and began reading at the book of Proverbs and uh, started reading all about wisdom and, you know, what is wisdom and the way in which that God describes wisdom through through Solomon. And I was just hungry. I was so hungry. I, I, I was praying and I was saying, God, this is what I want. I've got no wisdom. <laughs> I need your wisdom. Please show me the way. But even while I was reading the Bible, it seemed like this blasphemous voice in my own mind, you know, was just screaming mm. at, and just mocking God and the whole lot. But eventually that voice, um, as I continued to pursue Jesus and he pursued me, um, became less and less. Mm. But I did find that being in a college atmosphere, um, it was quite a battle and I didn't really know how to deal with it except that I became quite reclusive. And uh, so other than going to lectures, I would spend quite a bit of time in my room. And uh, But thankfully there were some other, well, there were some other people there who, as it turned out, weren't Christian. At the time I didn't realise it, but they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, so we'd have long discussions, but it was long before I realised that we are on two different paths. Thankfully the Lord showed me that. Um, through some other Christians who were there as well at the college who were on the, the right track. And uh, so, you know, he began to change me on the inside. My language changed. I didn't or tried not to swear like I used to. And uh, and uh, I got very, very hungry for fellowship. So every Friday evening I'd get along to fellowship at the Baptist church. And we had a local man who lived further out from the college and he'd pick me up. He was actually the youth leader and we'd go there and sing lots of songs. And I just felt like I was right in the very presence of the Lord while I was with these other young people. And we were singing lots of different choruses about Jesus. And, you know, that was, that was 1981. Um, and I still remember all of those songs. They're very clear in my mind. I often find myself humming them and, uh, you know, it's amazing how songs, of worship stay with you all throughout mm. your yeah um yeah there's plenty more i could tell do you want me to keep on going or have you got some other questions <laughs> well there's a there's a very uh holy spirit kind of led sessions it's um yeah more just seeing where he takes it and seeing how just hearing and, and sharing the gospel pretty much like sharing yeah. how god has impacted people's lives um yeah, it was it was awesome chatting to Nicole. Um, obviously, for those who don't know, Nicole is my mother-in-law <laughs> um, and yeah. your sister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, she mentioned only a very little bit about a little bit of your journey um, in the later years, I guess, of, of the things that you've been led to, which you've been doing quite recently, even with the missions stuff in India and overseas. And um yeah, if you feel comfortable with it, you're more than welcome to kind of share how God has moved in and through you to kind of allow you to step into those kind of opportunities. Okay. So it was um, after I'd left college that I married Linda and we had two children eventually, uh, Anna and Miriam. And so Anna was our youngest one. And um, they both grew up on the farm there where we used to live down in New South Wales, um, very healthy kind of a, an upbringing and there was a lot of happiness and a lot of love in the family and they as children loved Jesus and uh, but it was in um, 2005 and I was 15 mm. years of and I was very busy building a business and wanted to spend more time with my daughters and give them a bit of individual attention and so one day I decided to offer to take Anna for a ride as a passenger on my my road bike mm -hmm. so we ride 
up to a local lookout near Tamworth where we lived and we watched a beautiful sunset together. And uh, it was after that that we got back on the bike. And I do remember Anna saying to me, actually, um, while we were there, she said, isn't God amazing how he can make such a beautiful sunset? Yeah. We got back on the motorbike and we were heading toward home and we were actually almost home and I was indicating to do a right-hand turn into our driveway. And a cattle truck uh, came back uh, from behind us and didn't see us. The driver didn't see us and he ran over us. And sadly, Anna was killed instantly. Um, it's, I, I was thrown out of the way unconscious. And, um, and so that was a massive blow to myself and Linda. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it changed, that was life-changing for us. I mean, the first most biggest life change for me was to come to Jesus, but this was a complete life-changing experience as well, which sent us on a whole new new direction um, in our lives. And so how that happened was I was picked up by helicopter, taken to hospital. Meanwhile, Linda, my wife, was left with uh, Anna and the ambulance, the ambos down at the, the road at our front gate, um, trying to resuscitate Anna. And so that was pretty traumatic for her. And, you know, she's still got memories that she'd rather not remember about that. But, um, but the Lord actually spoke to her when she was on her way back to the house after they'd taken Anna, taken Anna's body. Uh, she, she was still on her own. There was no one around her. Mm. And she had a, a dream, or not a dream, it was sort of like a, a, it felt very strongly that God was speaking to her. And I don't know if you've seen that movie called The Passion, which we had watched um, back then. But uh, in that movie, there's a, a scene there where Jesus is carrying the cross through the through the streets of Jerusalem, and uh, and then Mary um, is, is there in the crowd, of course, watching her son suffer in the way he was, and uh, has um, a, a memory of him as a child, as a little child, and um, and she she sort of Linda, my wife, she relived that. And, and felt like that God was asking her to offer to him Anna, you know, mm -hmm. and go, just let her go as kind of an offering, mm -hmm. which is strange. But anyway, that was her experience. But uh, as for me, I was in hospital and it was the next morning um, after they'd resuscitated me and put me on whatever they had to do, I... Um, uh, Linda came in with a diary in her hand, which was a diary that she'd taken from out of Anna's bedroom. And we'd never read what was in that diary before, but it was very significant. And she'd read in the, uh, she'd written in there about a dream that she had, uh, a dream that she believed that God had given her. And uh, even as she was writing the dream, she would be saying that it's like God is giving me these words. Wow. And... Um, she wrote about how she wanted to form uh, a music band with some other young people. Uh, Anna herself was a very accomplished violin player and she could play, you know, fiddle, very fast <laughs> playing and uh, could just do it by ear. She didn't need music. She'd just listen yeah. to it. the next thing she'd be playing along with them. But um, she wanted to form a band and she said, I want to call the band Wake Up. And she wrote, I can imagine the band playing in the Bicentennial Park of Tamworth and the park will be filled with lots of people. Many young people will come to Christ. They'll become believers. Mm. And uh, she said, I can imagine what looked like a sheet, a white sheet falling down upon the crowd as we're playing our music. And so I, I believe that she was meaning the Holy Spirit by that. But uh, then she went on to write how I'd love to take my band into the poor places of the world and play to the children and give them lots of happiness and fun. And, of course, she was wanting to share her faith in Jesus um, there as well. Mm. There I am in hospital and uh, I'm reading through this and a friend had given me a CD which had a song on it called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And I'd never, I mean, it's a beautiful old song and, you know, I'd never really listened to the lyrics that that well, but I had plenty of time on my hands to listen to the lyrics this time. And one of the um, 
one of the verses really just I just broke out and cried. That was my release point, really. The Lord was speaking to me through a song which is not really even a Christian song, but and uh, words go sail on silver girl sail on by your time has come to shine all your dreams are on their way if you need a friend i'm following behind like a bridge over troubled waters and so to me that was anna was the silver girl she was blonde uh you know white skinned blonde and uh it was pretty obvious to me who god was talking to me about and he was saying to me you're going to take the dream it's called wake up and so that's how we got the ministry name called Wake Up. Yeah. Yeah, lots has happened since then and and um, I can continue on if you like. Yeah, that'd be awesome to hear how, how Wake Up's uh, happened through that, yeah, since then. So as I um, recovered and got out of hospital, um, I recovered quicker than what was expected. Uh, the Lord just restored my body and mm. kept my sanity, which was important too. Um, I connected with some friends in Tamworth who got around me and we formed a team. And, of course, my heart's desire was to cr- uh, create an event which would be called Wake Up, which would be in the Bicentennial Park of Tamworth, as Anna had written. And so... Um, it wasn't until 2000 and it was the following year, 2006, in September, I think it was, that we finally had an event there called Wake Up and Live Anna's Dream. Wow. Thousands. Well, about 2000 came. It was an event where we had organised lots of fun things for teenagers to do throughout the day. and um, But then we had uh, three different uh, Christian groups come from different churches and then some of Anna's friends who also played their violins there on the stage at night and then I got up and preached the gospel and shared about Anna's dream and about um, by the evening probably 500 were still there at the meeting uh, worshipping and uh, calling on God a lot of them weren't churched people that night um, hundreds of them put their hand up to signify they wanted Jesus in their lives Uh, and that was that was the beginning of of other things. Um, we also took the uh, band, which we had formed, called The Wake Up in Tamworth, around 10 different high schools in the lead-up to that event. Wow. And um, they played on the stage, and then I'd get up in each one and give the gospel to the teen- uh That was to high schools, yeah, teenagers. We probably reached about 5,000 young people mm-hmm. during that young pe- the, the the band players. They weren't much older than the students in the schools. They gave testimonies as well. So it was it was a very powerful time. Now, it was um, sometime after that that uh, Linda, who had been in a very dark space, she hadn't been involved in any of this. She was in bed very unwell for, mm-hmm. for probably at least 12 months. She lost half her body weight. Um, she, she, you know didn't really want to be here she wanted to be with Anna but anyway uh, she began to recover and around that time we received an email from a mission organization that we had previously been involved with which had to do with helping to microfinance people in poor countries to start businesses so they could be self-supported so the invitation was for her to join a group of women to travel to India and to visit the other women who had benefited from these these micro loans and who had received you know the mentoring in um, small business as well and, and i i said to her look you know this this email's here and it's for you I, I really think that if you can do it you should because you just need to go you just you just need to do something crazy and uh you know get some life back mm. and so she, she went with these women and they went over there and, and they visited, uh, a, a, I suppose you'd call it a, a field day where all these women had their, their wares and the things that they were selling, um, display stalls, I suppose you'd call them. And, and, uh, and then they visited an orphanage and 
Linda took Anna's toys to give to the, the children in the orphanage. And so we got lots of photos back with her doing that. Mm. Um, she came back from India two weeks later and she was changed. You know, she was, she, it worked. I mean, God did a miracle in her and mm. she wanted, well, she wanted to live again. Um, she started um, cooking Indian food in the house and putting up lots of Indian sorts of decorations. It's very artistic. And so a lot of her art became quite Indian looking. Mm. And even her clothes, she started wearing some Indian clothes and things. But um, but she also was saying, we need to go back. I want to go back, but, but we've got to go together. Yeah. I'd never had a dream to go to India. Um, Linda, Linda, previous to her going to India, she would never have chosen India if she wanted to go to a country. But obviously the Lord had other plans. And so I said to her, well, okay, but I just would rather do something than just tourism. I, I would like to go over there and meet a family and get to know them. And I did have one contact in my email list, which was a young man by the name of Elijah. Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, who lives in India. And um, I'd met him in Australia when he'd been over here for some missions training. Mm -hmm. But so the last time I had heard him speak in Australia in his very broken English was him sharing about a dream that he had to build a children's home. And so Elisha you know, grew up in abject poverty himself, but his heart was to give children uh an education and an opportunity to be able to work their way out of poverty and not just keep on repeating the same old cycle. Mm. And uh, we contacted him or I sent an email to him and, and I uh, got, got a response. And then I wrote back to him and said, would, would it be okay if we could come to India and visit you? And he wrote back and said, yes, that's wonderful. You know, do that. We'd love you to come. And then uh, I wrote back again and I shared it with uh, him about our story and about Anna's dream and about the wake up in the park. And, and then I finished off and then it was just a PS on the end. It was an afterthought, but obviously it was God's thought. And I said, we could have wake up in India when we come, but you'll have to organize it all. <laughs> Money over so you can do that. And I didn't hear back for five days. And, and five days later, he says um, in an email, I've been praying and I've been fasting and I've been asking the Lord. And he says, yes, let's do it. Wow. <laughs> and so we um, only had one month then before we were about to get on the plane and head to India. And we are uh, toing and froming quite a few emails after that, organizing things. And we sent some money over and, the plan was that um, he thought there would be around a thousand people that we would have come to the wake up event. So when the time came, we flew to India. Elisha met us in Hyderabad, Andhra Pradesh, and we got in a taxi and we drove on the most five hour death defying drive that I've ever been. <laughs> And uh, I had to sort of just keep letting go and saying, God, you wouldn't bring us to India just to die on the road, would you? <laughs> <laughs> For a reason. And so yeah. I was sort of praying, but um, we decided we'd never do that trip again, actually. We fly, actually, between points in India now. <laughs> Apart from the fact they've since built a nice highway, which would probably be drive on, but back then it wasn't that way. So anyway, we finally arrived at the meeting and it was already in full swing. We get in there and there's a large banner at the back of the stage, which had all the musos there singing worship wow. and, uh, and women uh, there, about seven of them singing, all dressed up in the same wake up saris wow. on them. The banner had wake up, you know, written across the back of the stage and, and, um, so we introduced ourselves to about a thousand people. As it turned out, it was actually one thousand six hundred people who eventually came. Wow! And we fed them all yes. uh, chicken biryani, which is their favourite meal in India. They normally use that just for weddings. So it's a very, you know, uh, a bit of a blessing for them anyway, particularly those who are in the poor parts of India. 
so we shared the gospel through the day. We shared, shared about our lives. You know, we were just connecting with them. We were just wanting to love on them and and um, and just, yeah, I, I mean, I gave a gospel message which started in the morning and then different sessions through the day. I took them for a walk starting from Genesis all the way to Revelations and the return of Christ. And, and um, about, oh, there was a few hundred there who, you know, signified that they wanted to follow Jesus. Praise God. After that, we uh, we continued our relationship with Elijah, and uh, lots of different things unfolded over the following um, fifteen years. Mm -hmm. the, the The children's home did get built, and wow. uh, and there's a big enough home there. Well, they call it a boarding school now, but um, for 150 uh, permanent people to stay there, boys and girls dormitories. And then there's the mess hall, and then there's we uh, accommodation that Westerners can come and stay in. Wow. Uh, big school block, which uh, would take about 500 students who are day students, along with the boarders who all receive education together in the school block, along with um, basketball grounds. And, um, and now they're in the process of building a hospital not on the same plot, but not far away, um, to offer medical, free medical help to the poor people in India. Um, during that time, Linda got very involved with helping to start sewing schools. So about 900 women received sewing machines and also three wow. months so they could begin sewing um, to make a bit of an income during the off-season when they weren't out in the fields working. So it's actually a, a rural area, so they're mostly just field workers working for a pittance most of the time. Helping get 900 sewing machines to people and things like that. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, that's been over a period of years. But we uh, um, we haven't done it for a few years. But Elisha, who is there all the time, he, he still has started off a few more schools since we were last doing it with him. But, um, yeah, they were pretty exciting times, um, getting them up and running and, and uh, seeing the fruit and the outcome of that. So there's women now who have businesses who wouldn't have had them before and they're able to support themselves in a way that they couldn't before since they're seasonal workers. And, of course, you can't be harvesting and seeding crops all year round. So they, yeah. they uh, found themselves in situations where they had to loan money from different people. And, of course, there's loan sharks over there as well who charge ridiculous amounts of interest and they end up becoming slaves to these people you know legal slaves really mm -hmm. and often they have them signed up to debts which they themselves really didn't know what they were getting into because generally they are uneducated they can't read they can't even sign their own signature all they can do is put a thumbprint or a fingerprint on a on a piece of paper to say yes i want the loan yeah Without, yeah and uh, and they don't realise that they've you know signed a legal document that's tied them tied them down in chains, and so anyway that's um, something that we've also been able to help out more recently within um, Pakistan, but in a different way. And so it was about four years ago that I began getting a lot of inquiries out of Pakistan through Facebook. Hmm. And started trying to respond to many of them. They were mostly, well, they said they were pastors. And, of course, you know, once you got chatting with them, all of them had lots of ministry needs, generally financial needs. And, um, and they were doing lots of good things. And so eventually I went over there. Mm. Uh, once I'd sort of narrowed it down to two different pastors. I uh, met up with one for a week and travelled with him and his team and then I tra travelled with the second one, which um, is Fayez Mirage. And uh, he's he's a man who's, um, what would you say, very streetwise. He didn't come to the Lord until a little bit later in life. And, um, and so I ended up choosing him uh, rather than the other one because he was just a, a younger person who didn't have the same experience. Yeah. And, and so we, um, since connecting with him, have been back there another two times. Wow. And I talk FaceTime with him probably three times a week. 
now and uh, we plan things together and, and um, he's very active, him and his wife. He has three, uh, four children. One of them's married with two children. And um, the two youngest sons and the daughter, who's 21 years of age, they, they're very much helping out with the ministry as well. And so they live in Lahore. But uh, the actual ministry outpost that they have and that we've helped them to establish is nearer to Faisalabad, which is about a four-hour drive from Lahore. Okay. One sense, you know, they are mission. Well, they are. They're, they're missionaries within their own country. And so Pakistan's an interesting place, as is India for that matter. But uh, India is 98% Hindu, whereas Pakistan is 98% Muslim. And, uh, but they both have minorities. Obviously, one minority is Christian. But, um, but also uh, Pakistan has a minority of Hindus still living up in that area. And, uh, and then, of course, India has a minority of, um, of Muslims living down there as well. And so it's the minority groups that always get pushed back and uh, get crushed. And of course, you know, we're more interested in uh, working closely with those who are Christians. Mm. And so there's a few different places that we're now working with in Pakistan. And one of them is near Faisalabad, where we have the, the main centre. And then um, we now have work happening or discipleship training schools, which we've been establishing all over the country. Um, in networking with other, Christ uh, with other pastors. And Fayaz is doing the networking, and so he travels a lot. But the other one is in Karachi, Pakistan, and then um, another one which, well, we've got discipleship training school happening in um, Lahore as well, and then Hyderabad. And so Pakistan also has a Hyderabad city, as does India also have a Hyderabad city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've got to differentiate between the two of them. Now, the, it's interesting how the, uh, the mission over there was established. I uh, had sort of forgotten about time differences and there came a point where I'd been chatting with a number of pastors and I finally made the decision, you know, that I would go and visit Pakistan. And, uh, and it was a bit of a, a faith decision because I, I wasn't sure about how safe it was. Yeah. We do hear a lot of stories of terrorism and things like that happening over there and but uh, I, I rang, well, face, tried to ring um, Fayez through, you know, Facebook on, um, yeah, and uh, and as it turned out, it was 2 o'clock in the morning over there. <laughs> <laughs> he took the call. Wow. The reason why he took the call was because he had committed himself, both him and his wife, some years earlier, that they would wake themselves up or ask God to wake them up at 2 o'clock every morning and they would pray for an hour. Wow back to bed and so when I rang at two o'clock he knew straight away that this was an answer to prayer wow and he believed in that moment that you know I was sent by God <laughs> that's amazing and my question was can we come and visit you in Pakistan we're planning to visit and uh and so he was already prepared with the answer for that one yeah so Linda and I then made our plans and um actually Hold on. That's right. I went over there to begin with on my own. Linda was planning to come with me and she wasn't able to because she became unwell. Mm. And she stayed home and eventually she actually caught up with me. Um, the way that we went into Pakistan was through India. And so just at the top of India, there's a, there is a gateway. There's, it's, it's a gate that you go through. We go through 12 border checks. Um, each time they're in there and, and coming back again. And uh, a lot of security because India and Pakistan hate each other. I mean, there's a cold war going on between them. Mm. Um, and so they're very careful about who comes across the border. And it, for an Indian to get across the border, it's much harder than for an Australian to get across the border. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, so... But Linda, Linda was a champion. I went up there and began travelling with the first pastor and uh, the young pastor. And then um, Linda, in the meantime, did actually um, recoup. She came well. She got herself on the plane, flew into 
into uh, North India and then cross the border on her own. A woman going into Pakistan on her own is oh. that's a real champion thing to do. We <laughs> see know what she was in for. Uh, we do hear a lot of bad stories about men treating women badly in Pakistan. Well, as it turned out, she couldn't have been treated nicer. Wow. But not everything you hear in the news. I mean, we hear tabloid news. We hear all the, the bad stuff, but we don't hear about any good stuff, not much. Yeah. And that's just the way the news makes their money. It's sad. That's the, that's the truth. So um, she was uh, welcomed into Pakistan, but just as a last thought before she arrived, because we were in touch with each other, thankfully, I sent her a photo and I said, whatever you do, to, this is, I showed a photo of Fayez. I said, whatever you do, do not get in a car with another face. It's got to be Fayez. If it's not him, don't get in it because I was worried that, you know, she could get kidnapped or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and so Fayez and Rabina and his family were there to meet her when she came across. And so when I came back after travelling the first week, she was there waiting for me with Fayez oh, wow. his family in Lahore. And uh, and then we travelled with Fayez and did a lot of a lot of travelling. And uh, and then afterward, just to reward ourselves for all of our efforts, we decided to do a trip up into the Himalayas. Beautiful. Took a tour guide up into that area, and so that was very memorable. Lots of beautiful photos there, and I, I think that must have been two thousand and nineteen when we did that. But. Um, but there's some beautiful stories there. Um, I could tell you one which I think is quite fascinating. And there was a time where before I knew Fayez and Rabina, they went to a big gospel outreach meeting. And so they do have them in Pakistan. And at that meeting, there were village people there who had a daughter whose name is uh, Nazia. And she was really only quite young at that stage. She would have been 12 or 13 years of age. And so there was a lot of worship and music going on, people praising Jesus. And uh, the parents knew that Nazia wasn't right. There was something wrong with her. And I think she'd been fitting and, you know, epilepsy and depression and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, But at this meeting, she began to manifest a demonic spirit for the first time. So wow. this thing. Thing sort of red, its ugly head. And Fayez and Rabina um, had the opportunity to pray for her. Now, they already had a ministry that was very effective in uh, delivering people from demonic spirits. Wow. And so they prayed for her, and, and Nazia was delivered. Hallelujah. So after the meeting, everyone went home, and um, Nazia went home with her parents to her little village outside of Faisalabad. And uh, But, you know, they didn't really know Fayez and Rubina. They just prayed for them. But uh, Nazia, being very zealous for God and being Roman Catholic at the time, um, decided that she wanted to become a nun. And so she went to a, um, a convent and she lived with the nuns. And But during that time, sadly, she was um, repossessed uh, worse than the first time by a demonic spirit. Mm -hmm and um, ended up in a similar state or a worse state than what she was before. And so her parents uh, were desperate once again to uh, find, you know, someone who could bring deliverance to her in the name of Jesus. And uh, certainly a lot of Christians are not equipped to do that and have never had anything to do with it. But, um, but I think that's a lesson for all of us. We need to be, I think all of us have Christ in us and we need to learn how to, do ministry and I'm still 58 years old and I've got a lot to learn yet but but uh, anyway they um, knew that they needed to contact Fayez and Rabina but they didn't know where they lived they had no phone number for them uh, they may not have been, even known their full names and so they went on a search and finally managed to track them down with a phone number rang them and said you know we our daughter's got problems again and we need you to come and pray for her. And so at that stage, I hadn't quite met Fayez and Rabina and the only mode of travel they had was a little 100cc motorbike, wow. which for us is just a, not much more than a scooter really. 
So they got on their motorbike in response to that call and they headed off toward uh, Faisalabad on all the back roads because little motorbikes weren't allowed on the highways. Wow. Just going through, you know, uh, farms and, and villages and and uh, it would be mostly unsealed roads and uh, and got themselves quite lost um, once they got toward Faisalabad trying to find the village. Eventually, they did find the village, but they'd been on that little 100cc motorbike for eight hours, the two of them, uh, by that stage. And, uh, and they found the village and the family. They prayed for Nazia, and she was delivered. And, um, and incidentally, before I forget, Nazia has since then gone through the discipleship training, and she's now a pastor. Wow, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So happy about that. But what happened was that um, because this family were Roman Catholic, there was a Roman Catholic church meeting place in that little village and the priest would come every Sunday and he'd just preach his sermon and do their rituals, collect a tithe, and then he'd disappear and they wouldn't see him again. And so they were getting pretty disheartened with, you know, their church experience. And now that they'd seen what Jesus really can do through a person, they wanted Fayez and Rabina to come and start uh, a church ministry in their own village. Wow. And, uh, and that was about the time that we actually came on board and connected with them. And so, of course, they began sharing um, their heart with us. And together we were able over here in Australia uh, raise funds to purchase a small block of land in the village from yeah. off, um, a subdivision that belonged to one of the Christian families there and uh, did that and then just cleared an open space and they began doing Sunday meetings. They'd go back to that place every weekend from Lahore, which by this stage we'd help them to lease a vehicle as well so they could go in a vehicle rather than just a motorbike and they could go on the highway so the trip didn't take so long. <laughs> And so really it's only a three to three and a half hour drive. And um, so they'd, they'd set up a, um, a, a tent every, you know, they'd hire a tent every weekend and they'd set it up there and wow. uh, just didn't actually have a roof on it. It was just a sort of a cordoned off area because there was no wall around it. And they'd send me videos of, you know, people worshipping their hearts out to Jesus with lots of very loud music, very loud speakers. And, of course, all the people in the village could hear it, the Muslims and the Christians. And, um, and you know, eventually more and more people started coming. And um, it was the second time that I – no, it wasn't the second time. By the time I went over there to visit them, they were already having these meetings. And um, – and I got to baptise the first uh, 15 of them were baptised into Jesus. Uh -huh. Praise the Lord. And uh, so that was very exciting. Uh, there was there was some um, threats there, actually, while we were baptising them in a, a swimming pool, uh, which was about probably 30 minutes, an hour's drive from where they lived. We heard a lot of commotion outside the swimming pool, pool grounds, and it sounded violent. You know, and I, I actually thought that, that, you know, that we were in trouble with the Muslims. I thought, hello, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. <laughs> and anyway, um, Fayez just helped me get out of there and get into the car very quickly so that I could just avoid the issue that was going on while he, you know, confronted or the, while these people confronted him. And as it turned out, it was the Roman Catholics. You'd think that in a country like Pakistan that it would be the Muslims who would actually give us the most grief, but it wasn't. It was the Catholics. <laughs> and wow. So one of them was horrified that their own daughter was getting baptised into a Pentecostal church, which is what Fayaz is. He's Pentecostal. and uh, But, you know, of course, his daughter was old enough to make her own decisions, but they weren't happy about that. And I can understand that too. So there's two sides to a story, but... But anyway, that, that dissipated and we haven't had too much trouble since then. Wow. That's yeah. A, it's, it's um, yeah, that, 
So there's definitely like a movement. It's it's a movement happening throughout. It's, you know, there was throughout India and still is through your contacts and now in Pakistan as well. Like that's yeah. amazing. And, and that all came um, from something that was placed on your heart and just the legacy that's now happened because you you all st- stepped out in in faith and and answered that call even in the midst of great great um pain and 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 trials in that in that moment um and the fruit that's come from from what you stepped into is incredible um, yeah well, there's scripture that um you know unless a seed falls to the ground and dies uh it cannot produce fruit something mm-hmm. to that and in one sense i mean i know that's what jesus did for us you know it was prophetic of jesus death and resurrection but but there's definitely a principle there and um you know god used anna in that same way to to birth a ministry which is impacting a lot of lives yeah. um you know there's a lot more happening in pakistan i could tell you about um we did go ahead and we finally got to build a church meeting place there along with accommodation. Wow. And Westerners who do want to come and stay or travel with us to India or Pakistan, we have um, people that we can trust and we have accommodation that's it's westernised. It's, it's, it's not rough. It's not rough as guts, put it that way. <laughs> It's not, it's not like camping. If you stay in the village unless you're organised with something like this, you're basically going to be camping like you would if you went bush here, which is not so bad. But when you're away in a place like that, it's probably not the safest way. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely not what I'd recommend anyway. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, there's been a lot of things unfold over there. Uh, we've distributed thousands of Bibles. That was the first thing we started doing through Bayaz. Wow. Apart from the discipleship training schools that we have in quite, oh, are you there? Yeah, quite a number of different places. Um, but there's been lots of other needs. Uh, perif- I call them peripheral needs because the number one priority that we have is to make disciples. Uh, and that came out of initially starting off in India and then Pakistan, the first time I went there, having big Build, you know, big crusades where thousands of people would come to these meetings. You know, we had up to 7,000 in some in the biggest meeting in India. Wow. And, uh, and then in Pakistan, the first time I went there, we did have a crusade with about 2,000 people that came. But I was getting a bit disheartened with the big crusades because um, um, yeah. I wasn't seeing the results of there being fruit, lasting fruit. People that come along and have a great, you know, worship session and, some good preaching, and then they'd go all go home and and um, and it costs a lot of money to put on. Of course, you know myself being a businessman, and and in this case, using other people's money that people have donated towards India or Pakistan, uh, which people do, I feel very responsible to use that money in the most absolute efficient way. Yeah, and uh, so. It doesn't cost that much to have discipleship training schools in Pakistan. We we do we have translated teaching materials for them and had them um, printed out into um, manuals that they use. Each year has a different manual, and um, and of course there's a bit of travelling between schools involved when Fayaz is overseeing it all. We do help the pastors out the, who network with us. And, um, and so we give them uh, a token of not a salary, it's a token, you know, like a thank you for each month, which yeah. you know, does mean a lot to them because the dollar goes a lot further over there than what it does here in Australia, that's for sure. And uh, so, you know, even um, 50 to $100 per month is, or $100 is actually a huge gift for a pastor over there. And so we are trying to support pastors who network with us with about a hundred dollars a month per per family, and that's in a country where a full time salary for a field worker or, or even a trade worker like Benjamin, um, he could in, if he was working in Pakistan, he could make you know two hundred dollars a month. Sounds <laughs> wow. so, like nothing to us, but over there, you know, people can survive on um, that much. 
although inflation's gone through the roof because their uh, financial crash has happened big time over there. And so our dollar is worth a lot more against the Pakistan rupee now because the, the Pakistan rupee has devalued hugely. Mm. And so we are actually able to buy a bit more now than what we could 12 months ago with the Australian dollar, but their inflation has gone up as well. So it, you know, eventually that will just cancel out. But, um, but anyway, so that's, that's the costing. That's the discipleship training. You know, you put on one of these big crusades and you, you can outlay, easily outlay, um, you know, five to $10,000 on one crusade. Wow. And, yeah. uh, and when you don't see the fruit of it, you're left thinking, hmm, don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, other things that have happened, which I call peripheral, are um, needs that come up along the way. Down in uh, the Karachi area, we work with, village people who were originally Hindu. Now, the village people around Faisalabad have always identified as Catholics. And now, you know, now they're spirit-filled Christians. But uh, down there in Karachi, um, not in Karachi, but in the, in the rural areas where the villages are, which is mostly where our work is happening, both in India and Pakistan. It's not so much in the city centre. Um, yeah, they were Hindu. And so there's a man down there, and we call him uh, Pastor Musa. <laughs> there's quite a story there. He was born a Hindu and grew up in one of these villages. And he got married and had children. And then his test this is his testimony. Uh, when his children, I'm not sure how old they were, but um, because Hindus worship idols, um, they, you know, they're demons, really. I mean, there's a demon behind every idol. Mm. And that it but well perhaps they do i don't know but they keep on worshiping these things and um but his family was getting attacked by demons wow and his children um were being attacked as well as himself and so he was becoming increasingly afraid and increasingly depressed uh, to the point where you know he was becoming quite suicidal and, and then the demons killed his children this is wow. what he's what he told us. I don't know how they did it, but they did. And so um, he uh, then was, you know, right on the brink of just taking his own life. And a young evangelist came into the village that day with a Bible. Wow. Sat down with him and, and uh, read some of the book of Matthew. And, and he, got to, he got to hear about Jesus for the first time. He'd never, ever heard the name Jesus. Of course, you know, the way they say Jesus is Yesu. Yeah. And, um, and so he became quite interested. And the young man um, uh, led him in a prayer of commitment to Jesus. And it was after that that um, he was on his own in his room and he still was, you know, in a place of, I suppose, not being absolutely sure. And then suddenly Jesus appeared to him in a bright shining light that was brighter than the sun. Oh. And and said, follow me. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And so he um, he got training after that and he became a pastor. And since that time, hundreds and hundreds of families, this was 30 years ago, so hundreds of families have become born-again Christians. Uh, they've converted from Hinduism and been delivered from, you know, demonic and a lot of them contacted him. Eventually they gave in because they too were being attacked by demons and they knew that the only way they were going to be free was to call on this man uh, who could show, you know, introduce them to Jesus and deliver them Lovely. from their, their torment. And so we, we minister down in that area, but they are very impoverished. They're very poor. They live in um, houses which are made from sticks and mud with straw roofs. And we had floods there, major floods happened last year, and many of these houses got ruined, got washed away. And so Fayez is actually very good at project managing um, buildings. And so he did a bit of that before I met him. And uh, we began fundraising for rebuilding of houses over there. Wow. Quite, you know, quite a few houses that we've rebuilt, possibly about a dozen, but there's so many more that need rebuilding another village 
um, another village only this earlier this year a bushfire went through the village and mm -hmm. wiped out houses and so um we couldn't afford to rebuild their houses but all we could afford to do was to buy them tents and so those families are now living in in tents and there's about 38 families who don't have homes um the tents will obviously keep the rain off them but but um, they survived one winter in those tents already. They're, they're heading into the summer now. And, uh, you know, they're not going to be as comfortable as they were in their own homes before. But the houses that we're building are, are not straw or mud. They're made from double brick. And um, they've got waterproof roofs on them, which is a big plus for most of them. And so, you know, we're doing it properly. They've got proper foundations that go down first. The other thing that we've had a lot of call for is many of the village people um, don't have direct access to clean water. Yeah. Uh, and so often they they rely very hev heavily on hand pumps, for, you know, pumping up bore water. Some places the bore water is undrinkable, but most places it's not too bad, but there's a lot of people feeding off one or two hand pumps in one area and often the, the Christians um, get themselves into trouble with the Muslims when they're all lining up, you know, waiting for water. And so we began answering the call to put water pumps in over there and, and um, you know, we've done 20 or 30 of them in the last few years. Wow. I'm not something like that anymore. I'm only guessing at that number, but yeah. you're right. Um, during COVID, when that all kicked in, uh, we were giving out food parcels there. And uh, recently, during the winter, uh, we gave out blankets and, and and shoes, shoes for the children. And so the blankets were, you know, good quality doona type blankets because it would winter for the village people to keep themselves warm in their their tents and their grass huts. And so they're all peripheral things that happen. The major thing is the discipleship training because what we're planning on doing, um, and this is God's plan, you know, I mean, he did say we should do it. So we're doing it because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Yeah. And uh, what I've grown up with is people pretty much just turning up at church and having a good time every Sunday and, and being good people in the community, which is great. Um, but actually making disciples doesn't seem to be something that we really know how to do or even even have any organised effort toward in Australia. You know, I wasn't discipled. I became a Christian, you know, when I was uh, 16 through the Baptist church, but but um, I, I got discipled in the, you know, the school of hard knocks. You know, I could have, I could have actually grown a lot quicker, I think, and been up and running and doing what I'm now doing. 30 years ago had I been discipled properly and so there's a massive need there here in Australia and there was over there too but we're filling that void it's beautiful and so these disciples you know once they're fully fledged and you know they've become pastors and God's opened the door for them to go into a new area to plant a church then we'll be there to stand beside them in doing that um what we envisage and this is in our constitution or our mission statement, is that those young pastors will go out, relocate, uh, either rent or, you know, somehow buy a house or a home and start a home meeting. And so it'll be a home church to begin with uh, until they get snowed under and either then they get to, you know, um, separate and form two home churches and then keep multiplying or we get to, you know, build buy some land and, and build a, a church yeah. meeting. And so that's that's where we sort of we're headed in that direction. We're not there yet. We've we're just in the process of doing that. We we did build a new church building earlier this year in a village down in um, one of those villages who were Hindu who have now come to Christ. And uh, there's a, an evangelist down there that we're um, supporting now to do the work of uh, running that meeting and doing discipleship training, which is just in the beginning stages, that one. We're planning to um, 
built a school, that same village where we built the church, they actually donated the land to the Wake Up Foundation, which is a legal wow. entity done, for us to build on it. And so it's owned by, you know, not by a private person, which is a good thing because it can never be on sold for any other purpose. And, uh, and we got to meet with them in that building in the village while we were over there. They've now shown land that they are prepared to donate to the, and the paperwork's being done up for it, another block of land in the same village to build a school. And so uh, the children of that village, they don't have a school in the village, and so they head off to another area each day on a bus, and the school is an Islamic school. And the children are getting heavily persecuted because, you know, there's such a small minority and children are nasty to each other as they are in a lot of places, including Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and um, can be very nasty. And so they come home pretty disheartened, not wanting to go back to school. And so uh, the village people have asked us to build one. And we, there again, they say, we will provide the land if you can provide the building. And so that, that's, that's something we're going to begin fundraising for uh, very soon. Yeah. But, um, um, that's amazing. Like um, just to see how God has continued to move in and through you and your family in this moment. And one thing I, I really that stands out to me is, you know, all the, the seeds that have been sown and even this harvest that's come. And yet, you know, there's a lot of people that would project themselves when they're in a situation like this, you know, that they would say, you know, um, they would put themselves up on a bit of a, a, a hierarchy or a pedestal and try to make themselves known for what they've done. But one thing I'm noticing in you is that there's like this beautiful humility through the whole thing because it comes back to that God called you, therefore you obeyed through it. And the fruit that's come from that is very evident. I mean, you've because of your openness to God and the humble heart towards that and the passion, like, you've been able to bless and encourage and greatly impact people's lives in, in many places. And um, that really will have shifted the projection of their eternity and, and their heritage forever. And um, that's incredible with God. Obviously it all goes back to God, but like the people who have helped be donating to your cause and, um, and everyone that's come alongside you and, and the team, like that's, that's incredible what God's done throughout this moment and through this through this wake up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If anyone wants to get onto um, the website and have a look, um, it's www.wakeupinternational.org. So um, yeah, I encourage anyone who's watching the video to have a look and uh, see what you think. Pray, ask the Lord to guide you. Maybe He wants you to join this work and help out you might want to go to india or pakistan one day um, contact us you know we're the people to talk to we've been doing it for 15 years now particularly india and uh, now we're very confident to take people into pakistan after our last few trips that we've been there whereas previously we wouldn't have been so right now as we speak um we're thinking or planning and praying towards going into nepal oh. uh, That'll be the next door that has already opened and we've got invitations over there to um, open up the wake-up ministry in that country as well. And wow. so, yeah, there's invitations coming from different parts of the world, but this this one's something that has got our attention yep. and uh, just see what unfolds there. That's amazing. And it's exciting days ahead, it seems like, to see where God's going to, continue to take this and um, the lives is going to continue to impact through this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a, an incredible pleasure to be able to um, chat and over yesterday and today and to kind of hear your journey of how you came to know Christ and what that's taken you on since then and how he has moved in and through you and your family um i would love to pray for you before we finish up if you would like that um if there's anything in particular apart from the things that you have mentioned already about um with prayer um yeah just um just pray towards the forming of 
the legal tax deductible entity that we're working on now, that the Lord would guide us through and that everything be done according to his will and purpose. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, I will quickly pray for you <laughs> and your family. Lord, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the incredible opportunity um, you have given him throughout the many years uh, to go to Nepal in the days to come, God willing, to go to India, to go to um, Pakistan, Lord Jesus, and even throughout places in Australia to just um, be awoken to your presence in your call in his life through this wake-up um, entity that you have created, this this company, this program, Lord Jesus, where they've gone and they've been able to inspire other people to pursue you, to uh, witness your existence and to encounter you in such a powerful way, Lord. And we just thank you for the, the multiple streams of revenues and, and avenues that this is, is coming out of, Lord Jesus. You are you are creating all these ripple effects, Lord, and that is amazing and that, that is the heart of a movement. And we just thank you, Lord, for what is to come. We just pray for Paul and Linda and their family that they would continue to have wisdom to know what they need to do next in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of Nepal, in terms of the decisions they need to make even with India and Pakistan for the forming of the, um, the legal tax-deductible entity um, for Wake Up Foundation, Lord Jesus. Um, we just thank you that you have had your hand on this. You called them, you equipped them, and you will continue to provide for them. Um, and we are just so excited to see what you're going to do in the days ahead through this. So we just thank you for your provision. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your direction. And we just um, bless Paul and Linda and the family abundantly. And, um, yeah, thank you that you love them so deeply and you will guide them in all that they need in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you, Ruth. And I'll, I'll let you go now. I suspect someone's just walked through the door. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Ben. <laughs> okay. just through the window. <laughs> Say hi to Benjamin for me. <laughs> will do. Thank you very much. And okay. um, yeah, have a good day. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Wow, what an honour it has been to hear Paul share his journey of how he came to encounter Jesus and the incredible journey that has taken both him and Linda on through that. Um, it is beautiful to hear the constant faithfulness and presence of God through all things, even some of life's most tragic situations. Um, we praise God that he took something that was heartbreaking and tragic in their lives and turned it around for his greater glory. Um, and we are so expectant of amazing things to continue to come from Wake Up internationally and even in Australia. We pray that you have been blessed and encouraged and deeply moved by this journey of Paul and Linda's life. And um, if you're interested in learning more about Wake Up, I will bring a link below for the website um, that you can go check out what's going on. And we just hope that you would continue to keep Paul and Linda and wake up in your prayers and that it would be encouraging to you to continue to step out in all things with Jesus as he moves in and through you in every season of your life, even the hardest ones. So God bless. Have a great day. And until next time, this is Ruth Turner. Signing out.